This is the Creative Agency Podcast, where we explore the strategies, aspirations, methods, and mistakes behind growing and maintaining a successful creative agency. Hello out there, and welcome to another episode of the Creative Agency Podcast. My name is Chris. I have a very special guest, an agency expert and author, Blair Enns. But first, I'd like to remind you of the Grow Your Agency Slack group. We're over 400 members strong, and I invite you to join, and it's free to sign up. Uh, just go to creativeagencypodcast.com and click on the link. All right, without further ado, welcome to the show, Blair. Thank you, Chris. Um, so you have an amazing book called Win Without Pitching, which I believe every agency owner should read. And now you have a new book about value-based pricing um, called Pricing Creativity, A Guide to Profit Beyond the Billable Hour. I loved both books, and I actually like to touch on both in this interview. Um, but let's start with Win Without Pitching. Um, can you briefly describe uh, the premise of the book? Yeah, the Win Without Pitching manifesto came out in 2010, so it's about nine years now. And it's, uh, I really think of it as a yes, you can book. It's a book meant to inspire agency owners or professionals of all types to, to see and believe that there is a better way of doing new business that does not require you to give your thinking away for free. And it does not require you to supplicate yourself to the, to the client in the sales process and give all your power away to the client. So it's it's broken into 12 chapters. Each chapter is a proclamation, a proclamation of things that we will do differently from now on moving forward. That's awesome. It's actually particularly relevant um, to my agency, Murmur Creative, because we actually got burned a couple of times um, uh, recently, big brands getting us to pitch. And uh, one of which was actually a national brand where we actually won the work and then they pulled the plug on the project. Um, after we had won the work and we we're just like, oh my gosh, we just put all that time and energy. We won the pitch and <laughs> we don't get anything from it. So, um, we're actually very on board with the, uh, win without pitching manifesto right now. <laughs> Great. And your story, it's, it's not all that uncommon, right? So I'm curious, do you, do you think that pitching serves these brands that that you know ask for pitches, does it have benefit for them? I think largely it's a poor way to go about hiring an agency, um, unless your intent as the client is a very short-term relationship where you're just going to execute against the idea or ideas that are delivered in the pitch, and then you're going to go away. If the client is at all interested in a long-term working relationship, a pitch is not a good sample of, of that relationship of how two entities will work together. I also don't think it's a, um, I don't think it's a great test of how creative the agency is. I think it's, um, it's a, you get a sample size of one, the, you the, you, the uh, client, you're going to hire the agency that comes up with the best ideas. At least that's the premise. So it's a sample of one. Um, and I think there are all kinds of different ways to hire hire an agency outside of the pitch. I don't think it serves anybody well, client or the agency. I think it's uh, highly ingrained bad practices on both sides of yeah. the table. Yeah. I mean, we've done probably only a handful of, honestly, we were just sort of so flattered to be asked by these large companies to, to present that we ended up getting sucked in. And, you know, we, we asked for money in, in all the cases and we're like, can you, 
you know, can this be a paid pitch? And they basically covered some travel costs for us. And that was about it. Actually, a funny anecdote is that this yogurt brand that we um, pitched for, they recently just rolled out their, um, their new design, which, you know, it was so simple. It was something that we could have done in our sleep but we didn't win the pitch because there was, you know, this elaborate process and they, they were, they took all of the pitching work and they tried to do like user testing and getting customer feedback and all this stuff that just seemed so silly because we, as a accomplished design agency, we can do just about anything. So, you know, like why, are you pitching agencies against each other when like, we're all competent enough to do the work? <laughs> Yeah. And if you knew then what you know now about the client, if you were allowed in the sales process or the selection process, depending on your point of view, to really get to understand the client, what they valued, how they went about making decisions, um, how likely they were to embrace good creative, to take your lead, to recognize your expertise. If you were allowed to discern all of that, then maybe you could decide that Either this isn't the right client for you, or maybe you would embolden yourself to have the conversation that you need to have with the client to see if they can step up, see if they can give you what you need to be allowed to lead. Uh, But the pitch doesn't allow for any of that. It keeps both parties at arm's length. The communication is one way at a time. Um, People are law. It's brief and present, brief and present. People, things are being lobbed over the fence. And then both parties are kind of working in isolation. There's very little open freeway communication. So, you know, if you, if you, if you knew then what you know now with the client, you would either decide not to do business with that client, or you would have a very direct conversation about what it is you need from them and and the process allow for. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I know, you know, from, from other experience, we know that anytime that our process gets disrupted, you know, we're at a disadvantage and we have strategy processes, you know, we have in-depth research and, and client engagements and kickoff meetings and all these things that we do with a client, you know, before we get to the creative. And if we put the creative first, like the chances of actually hitting the mark are so much lower. Yeah. Um, one of the things that, um, you advocate in, um, when without pitching is avoiding doing presentations, um, for potential clients. Um, why should agencies abandon their beloved presentations? Well, what I'm proposing in the manifesto, and I think it's the second proclamation is that, um, let's examine why it is that we present. And my thesis is in this some search to support this, that we present not because it's, it's in anybody's, it's in the client's best interest or it leads to better work. We present for reasons that are entirely ours. Creativity is the ability to see. It's not the ability to write or draw. It's the ability to bring a novel perspective to a problem. So as a creative firm, your strength is being able to think about situations differently. And for reasons I don't fully understand, directly linked to the ability to think about things differently, to be able to see where others cannot see, is also the ability to think on your feet. So if your strength, if one of your superpowers is the ability to think on your feet, you are going to crave the moment when you are standing in front of an audience on a stage, essentially, 
and uh, conducting the big reveal. You're doing the big buildup. You're you're holding. It's usually a, sometimes it's strategy, sometimes it's creative, sometimes it's both. But you're holding that close to you. The boards are facing you, or you haven't put them up in the screen yet. And you do the big buildup, and then you do the big unveil, the big reveal. And I maintain that we in the creative professions, we are addicted to that moment, that big reveal. And it's part of the reason why the per- pitch persists is we love presenting so much we're willing to do it for free. And I don't think the presentation serves anybody because we pay a lot of lip service, not just in the creative professions, but in business in general these days. We pay lip service to the idea of working transparently and collaboratively with each other. And if you just think about it for a second, you realize that if you truly are working transparently and collaboratively with your clients, then you are eliminating the need for the big reveal. You're not really working transparently and collaboratively. What you're doing is you're withholding knowledge from the client as you gain insight, as you come up with ideas, you're withholding it from the client so that you can preserve the conditions where the presentation becomes necessary. And you do it for reasons that are entirely personal to you. You love the presentation. I'm speaking to the listener here. You love presenting so much, you're willing to do it for free in the pitch. And until we embrace that truth, the dirty little secret in the creative (laughs) profession, as I like to call it, until we admit that that we do this for reasons that are ours and not because the client or the work benefits from it, once, once we admit that, then we'll start to see we'll start to see how we can kind of unwind the pitch. We'll start to see how we're not serving the client well. So it's not that I'm anti-presentation. I would just ask everybody to think before you go into your next presentation, why am I doing this? Mm-hmm. Am I doing this because it's this is the way we've always done it or because I really love this moment? And if I if I weren't allowed to do a presentation, how would I be working differently with the client? And the answer you come up with is almost certainly going to lead to better work for the client. So yeah, I'm a little anti-presentation, but most of all, I would just ask people to ask themselves, to be honest with themselves. What are the real reasons you're doing this? Um, you know, in reading When Without Pitching, I realized your book is about a lot more than just pitching to clients. I couldn't help but feel that it was, you know, talking a lot, a lot about integrity and self-respect. Um, you talk a lot about standing your ground and focusing on what you're an expert at, Um but isn't it dangerous for you know a young agency to boldly set the playing field with a new client? Um, don't they risk you know losing the client because they're you know standing their ground? No, that's my one word answer. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't see any correlation, and you know you're going to lose some clients by by challenging the client. But imagine let's take that what you just said and let's apply it to another profession. Let's apply it to doctors. So a young doctor coming out of medical school, you're seeing your first patient, and the patient comes in self-diagnosed, self-prescribed, and just demands that the doctor write a prescription. Like, would the advice to the doctor be, well, you know, you don't want to lose that patient. So, you no, if, if that young doctor allows the patient to essentially have the diagnosis and the prescription and drive the relationship moving forward and telling the professional, in this case, the doctor, what he wants that professional to do, then that professional is essentially, not essentially, they are committing malpractice. Now, if you see yourself as a professional, then you will see yourself as having the same obligation to 
diagnose before you prescribe. And if the client comes to you self-diagnosed, then you will see yourself as having a professional obligation to validate that diagnosis before you proceed on the client's self-prescription. And if you're not doing that, then you simply don't see yourself as a professional. You see yourself as a vendor of a common service that doesn't have a significant impact on people's businesses or lives. So, you know, if we make a generalization, you can choose to be a vendor or you can choose to be an expert practitioner. And if you really want, if you really crave that high ground, if you crave clients who will who will listen to you and take your advice and respect the way that you want to work, then you'll just see yourself as a professional and understand that you have a professional code of conduct and you have a way that you really need to behave. And if you're not behaving that way, then you're just, you're just, you're setting yourself up for failure. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in preparing for this interview, I read both your books in tandem and I, I couldn't help but feel that pricing creativity, um, it kind of feels like a sequel I mean, they're the same themes of sort of focusing on your niche, being an expert, and valuing valuing your work at a premium. Um, do you do you think of pricing creativity as a continuation of the ideas in in Win Without Pitching? Well, I love that you said that, and that's the first time somebody's commented on. I really do see it as a sequel, even though you know the subject area is a very specific part of new business, and that's pricing. So I think I said earlier, I see the Win Without Pitching Manifesto as the Yes You Can book. I wanted it a certain size and a certain length. I actually, before I sat down to write it, I had the framework for it, but I, I, knew, I knew how thick the book I wanted to be. And I took a book that was that thick and then I cut it to the size. And then I wrote to the size of the book. And I don't know that that's the way you're supposed to write a book, but that's the way I did it. Because <laughs> right. I understand my target audience and designers they're not big readers. I wanted it to fit on a toilet tank. I wanted it to fit in a purse. I wanted you to be able to read it on a two-hour airplane ride. Mm-hmm. But so it's a real yes, you can. It's designed to inspire you to get you to see that there's another way. There's not a lot of how-to in that book. Pricing creativity is a manual, and in the if you order the the hardcover version, it shows up in a three-ring binder. It's really meant to be a workbook, a working manual. And it's the here's how to book. So I really do see it as the sequel. Um, and it's specifically in the domain of pricing. But you cannot be a good pricer without being a good salesperson and a negotiator. Those three areas or domains are intertwined. And as soon as you remove selling from the subject of pricing, it's just theory. And the theory breaks down in the practice. The practice is in having the conversations. And that's all selling is, is having a facilitating a choice, having a conversation with the client and facilitating a next step that's in their best interest. So yeah, I absolutely see it as a sequel. Thank you for pointing that out. Of course. So for the uninitiated, can you um, explain what value pricing is? Yeah. Value pricing is the idea that you set your prices not based on the costs of your inputs, time and materials, that's known as cost-based based pricing and not based on the market value in air quotes of your services out in the market but you set price based on the value of delivering that service to that particular client which means inherited idea is a whole bunch of other ideas number one that all value is subjective it's entirely in the eye of the beholder and number two different clients 
should be expected to pay different amounts for what might end up being the same service or deliverable. And to not do I can imagine some people listening to this and going, well, that's not fair. Then you're misunderstanding the word fair. <laughs> <laughs> it's not equitable. Um, but to be equitable and to charge everybody the same price for different services, even though the value delivered can be the difference in value delivered can be exponential. That is unfair. Um, and I could, we have more, to, we could make that case. And I try really hard to make the case in that book. Um, but that's what value-based pricing is. It's charging based on the value that you create for your client. And if, if you start to do that, it has all kinds of implications about how you work, how you think about your work. And all of those implications are positive. They will, it will make you better at what you do. It will make you more entrepreneurial. It will make you, it will shift the focus from you, what you do, the services you see yourself selling. It'll shift your focus 180 degrees onto the client, onto the client's challenge on how to how you can help create value for the client. And I say this, and I understand that most people will listen, nod their head and go, yeah, I get that. And we're literally client focused. They're not. I can prove it when, I, when I'm doing workshops and I have a key favorite exercise I do. It's just kind of elaborate, but I get everybody to see that you, you think you're focused on the client. You say you're focused on the client. You're really not. And I give me enough time. I can prove it. <laughs> if as an agency, you're doing value-based pricing, do you still need to track billable hours? No, no. So, I mean, again, there are three different things you can sell and therefore three different ways, things you can price. You can, you can sell and price your inputs of time and materials, your outputs of the deliverable, and often that price is a derivative of the cost, time and materials, or of the market value, or you can sell in price value creation. And if you're selling and pricing value creation, you're not billing hours at all. Now, there are in the book, one of the last chapters, I talk about transitioning away from time because some brave agencies understand the power of value-based pricing, and then they just stop timesheets altogether. But they're in the minority. I think if you're listening to this and, and, you're, and you're considering the idea of value-based pricing for the first time, you're probably horrified at the idea of letting go of, of not only billing hours, but tracking time. You think your world's going to implode. You think there's some, how are we going to measure profitability? All of these problems immediately leap to your mind. But the more time you spend reading about it, thinking about it, talking to others who do it, you realize you're really just trapped by conventions in your own mind. So it's not necessary at all to sell time or track time. Now, having said all that, I actually think there are times when it does make sense to sell time or to put forward an option in your proposal to certain clients that if you just want to buy time, we'll sell you time. The benefit of selling time is um, it's easy. It's, it's just super, what's our two, two primary benefits? It's easy for, for you to calculate it and it's easy for the client to understand it. That's benefit number one. And benefit number two is it pushes all of the risk to the client. And so the client says, how much is it going to cost? You say, well, it's, $200 an hour. And the client says, well, how many hours? I don't know, maybe 40, maybe 80, uh, whatever it is, I'll send you a bill at the end. And then you're pushing all the client to the, all the risks of the client. On the other end of the spectrum, pricing based on value. Now there are different ways to structure 
value-based prices, the different ways to get paid for the value that you create. And the most extreme end of that spectrum would be contingency pricing. So it's just an example of the many points on the spectrum. It's the end point in the spectrum, which is essentially you don't pay us anything until we deliver the value that we've said that we're going to deliver. And value means you know sales, profit, increased leads, whatever forms of value. So those are two ends of the spectrum. If you're pricing, if you're offering a contingency, full contingency price, then you are taking all of the risk and the client is taking none. If you're selling hours, the client is taking all of the risk and you are selling none. Um, and in between those two endpoints on the spectrum, there is an infinite number of ways that you can sell and price. And again, I think there are certain situations when it makes sense to put forward an option to certain clients to say, well, here's an option. You can just buy a block of hours from us. So I don't think it's evil. Um, I don't, uh, and I think it makes sense from time to time to consider doing that. But largely, you want to look for the opportunities to sell and price based on value creation. And I think the average firm out there, if you can convert 20%, so one in five of the projects that you do for your clients to value-based pricing, I think that's a really good success. And I think the average firm out there would probably double their profit by doing that. Actually, I actually think they would do far more than that. I think on, but on average, it's reasonable to expect you would double your profit by value pricing 20% of your engagements. Well, that, I mean, that's kind of a good point and, and probably a good way for agencies to, to think about value-based pricing is not something that you necessarily have to jump in um, all the way that you can, you know, that you can experiment, that it could be a a portion of your projects that it that it's not a hundred and fifty percent commitment necessarily, um, and I think that you know my agency. I think that we're very interested in value based pricing, but we're still a bit rooted in you know hourly pricing, or actually we sort of moved to day and half day pricing. Um, so I think that yeah, we're we're definitely. Um, curious and, and we want to make strides in that direction. But I don't think that we would, um, I think that jumping in all at once might be ca cause a little too much disruption. Yeah. And I, I think most people listening to this podcast would kind of identify with that. So it's not necessary to throw out one method and wholly adopt the other. The second rule, I have six rules for pricing creativity in the book. And the second rule is to always offer options. So if you imagine, I said twice now, there's three different things you can price. Imagine a conversation with a client where you uncover what it is that the client wants, um, the metrics of success that you'll use to determine if success has been achieved, the value that you might be created. And then let's say there's a four step, I'll just skip over it and keep it simple. Let's say you uncover those things and you say to your client, okay, I'm, go I'm going to go away and think about the different ways that we can help you create this value. And I'll back with a proposal. I'll share three different ways that you can work with us. Um, number one, if you want to, if you want to just buy some time from us, we'll give you a rate on the time and we'll make an estimate on how much time it take, you know, within a range and you'll just pay whatever it ends up being. Number two, if you want some price certainty, I can, um, I can give you a price for the specific deliverables that we come up with. We're talking about a website or a, or a identity or whatever it is. I'll give you I'll give you a specific price on that. But number three, we've in this conversation we've uncovered some 
really exciting forms of value that we might create together. I'll give you a third way to hire us. And that's essentially, we'll propose to to partner with you on this. We'll, 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 we'll map out some deliverables, but we'll essentially work with you until we achieve the value that we've uncovered. And we're willing to put some of that compensation at risk. So the price will be a lot higher, but we'll, we'd be willing to put some of that compensation at risk so we have some skin in the game. So you can basically buy time from us, you can buy deliverables from us, or you can buy kind of a partnership relationship from us. And it's really up to you. So that's, that's, um, that's me for three options or telling the client I'm going to come back with those three options. And I'm lining those three options up with the three different things that you can sell. And what I'm allowing the client to do is to choose, based on their own risk profile, choose how it is that they work with this. Now, so if you just simply do that, and I'm not suggesting when I say put forward three options, all three options should be that clearly lined up against the three different things that you can price and sell. But if you were to do that, your average price is going to go up. Your average, your close ratio is going to go up. Your profit margin is going to go up. And your clients will choose the way that they want to work with you. And people were used to sell inputs or outputs. You're going to be surprised at the people who really want to work with you on a partnership basis and are willing to pay you a lot more if you stick around long enough so that the work that you do, the deliverables actually produce the results that they want, because it's not the deliverables that they want, certainly not the hours of time that they want from you. They want outcomes. And that's what value-based pricing is. You're proposing to work with them until you get the outcomes. And there are certain clients who will pay you a lot more multiples of what you think they will pay you, multiples of what they, you think they will pay you. If you put forward the option to work with them on that basis. But not everybody will. If you can get one in five to choose that, it, it will transform your firm. You talk about the difference between um, customized service firms and productized service firms. Um, and actually, I love that delineation. Um, can you explain the, the difference for our audience? I can, yes. So most creative firms or marketing firms are customized services firms. And in a customized services firm, you have a small, finite number of ongoing clients at any one time. It's somewhere around 12. It's really like 8 to 15. And many listeners listening to this are thinking, well, I have 30. Some are thinking, I have 50. You have too many clients. Um, it really should be around 8 to 12. And there's some math on this. But that's a customized services firm. And you, you, um, you keep this client small. You go deeper into those clients. And the key is you see every engagement with those clients as a blank slate of opportunity. Every engagement from client to client would be different. If you're really focused on the client and the value that they want to create, the solution you come up with for each client will be a creative act. And therefore, the proposal, the pricing should be a creative act too. And when I look at your roster of, say, 12 clients, and I look at the work you're doing for... 12 clients and how you're getting paid and even the margins there everything is different everything is a creative act in a productized services firm you are pursuing scale so you take what it is that you do and you try to put them into boxes almost like products on a shelf and you set prices for those products and you might even put the prices on your website and you do this because you're pursuing scale so you're giving up the opportunity to earn extraordinary profits through extraordinary value creation 
because you're not you're not customizing your services to a client, but you're pursuing the opportunity to make as much or more money over the long run through the pursuit of scale. Now, in my business, Win Without Pitching used to be a solo consulting practice, and now it's a training company. And so we were a customized services business, and now we're a productized services business in pursuit of scale. So everything's different. Staffing is different. Culture is different. How you make money is different. Everything is different. So is it right in assuming that um, that a customized firms are usually smaller? And the reason why I'm thinking is like, is there such thing as like a 50, 100, 200 person customized services firm? Or at that point, do you become productized just sort of by necessity? No, there isn't. So if you think of the largest agencies in the world, many hundreds of people, even thousands of people, they're still customized services firms. But if you look at their client base, so almost you know, 90% of the agencies out there are kind of violating the guide, the guidelines of you know keep your client base small between eight and 12 clients. Um, but even the largest, so let's, let's say the average customized services firm has like 25 clients. Um, if you look at a half million dollar a year firm versus a um, hundred million dollar a year firm, what you should see, the difference is not in the number of clients that they have. In fact, my bet would be the smaller firm has more clients. The difference is the size of those clients, the amount of money those clients spend with that agency. So if you're a, let's say you're a million dollar agency and you want to get to 2 million, you have 10 clients. You think, well, I'll just go get 10 more clients. No, what you do is you manage the healthy churn or turnover of your client base and you replace the outgoing clients with clients that are larger. So you go from 1 million to 2 million or from any size to any larger size by replacing smaller outgoing clients with larger incoming clients. So it doesn't necessarily mean that by getting to a certain size, you change your business model. It would be really hard for a 500 person customized services firm or agency to change to a productized model at 500 people. The larger you are, the harder that transition would be. Gotcha. Gotcha. So in a way, in order to be a large um, customized service firm, you just kind of need larger clients with more needs. Yes. Or you go deeper into those clients. Gotcha. Um, so we touched on a little bit earlier, but you, you talk a lot about giving three pricing options in a contract. Um can you explain the your thinking behind yeah, it's this? Yeah, supported by um, a lot of science, um, mostly in the um, behavioral economics field. So, if I uh, so, the first point would be if you put forward a proposal with one option and one price, you're essentially it's, it's essentially a take it or leave it proposal. You're saying to your client, "Here's what we're going to do for you, and here's here's what we're proposing to charge. Take it or leave it." and one of the things that I prove in the book, and I like to do this on a stage when I can share some visuals, can't do it here, unfortunately, is the importance of context of how little in life is truly objective. All of our experience is really subjective. We're making comparisons. And the, the key point is when human beings cannot subjectively perceive absolute value. So if I put forward a proposal to you for $50,000, don't look at that and go, yeah, that's worth $50,000. What you do is you compare it to other things. You compare it to 
proposals from other agencies for $50,000. What else you could spend that $50,000 on? What you paid me to do something like this before? You're constantly searching for comparisons. So if you put forward that one pay or so that proposal with one option, one price, you're forcing the client to go away and find something against which to compare your proposal to. So the primary reason you're putting forward multiple options is so that you can control the comparisons. And you you see the difference if if you haven't done this before, so and, and you do this for the first time, you put forward a three-option proposal, you will see the difference in the client's thinking. They go from trying to answer the question, is this worth $50,000 to trying to answer the question they're actually equipped to answer, which is which of these is the best value? So you change the question, you control the context. And that's the, those are the primary reasons why you put forward options. Gotcha. You recommend that um, agencies bid with even numbers. Why is that? Um, because anytime your price implies a formula. So I said $50,000, but what if the price was $47,895? So that price implies a formula. And anytime your price implies a formula, you invite the client to use that formula to try to make the price cheaper. And the standard formula is rates times hours. So the pushback is, well, what's your hourly rate? Or how, it's not going to take you that long. Instead, just put forward a price of $50,000. That's a more defensible price. And I talk about this in the book. And if the client says, well, 50, that's a big round number. Where did that number come from? <clears throat> and you can say, well, that's what we charge companies like yours for work like this. Or you can say, we're proposing to create multiples of that price and value for you. 50000 seems like a fair exchange. And so I think those are more defensible prices. Gotcha. So what do you do when an agent, when they say, well, another agency said they'll do it for this amount? So let's take logo design because this is the best example of this. I love this question. Put forward a proposal for, you know, logos, as I talk about in the book, logos cost, you know, somewhere between $200 million. Uh, and every agency has their kind of sweet spot, their bandwidth. So let's say you put forward a proposal for $10,000 for a logo. And the client looks at it and goes, I know a firm that can do this for 5000 The response I like is, oh. There's a great website. It's called Fiverr or 99designs or Upwork. You can get a logo for $100. In fact, I bet you can get it for free. And then stop. <laughs> What's just like, So I'm being a little bit glib, but it's my point is somebody says, I can get it for less. Yeah, and you can get it for more. And we tend to charge. So you know, if you're falling back on price or market, we tend to charge this. Or you could push back and try to talk about the value. It's a little bit difficult, but not impossible with the logo when you're talking about the value of a logo. It depends on the nature of the business that the client is in. But don't, just because somebody says they can get it for less, doesn't mean, you know, yeah, you can get it for more. And for us to, to uh, create the value that you're looking to create, we think this is a fair price. And if you want to push back on costs, like if, you, if you want to still continue to work from your your plus plus basis, you can just say, you know what, this is what we charge logos for, for, charge for logos to companies like yours. And the client might say, well, what do you mean companies like ours? Would you charge us more if we were larger? Yeah. You know, an interesting problem, um, which is not a bad problem to have at my agency, is that we have a ton of um, incoming business inquiries, almost more than we can handle. And the challenge a lot of times is how to engage these clients and 
figure out who who needs to come to the table, who we should be having just a phone call, who we should be brushing off with an email. Um, do you have any suggestions as far as sort of managing um, that sort of incoming um, opportunities? I think in, in the framework that we use, we call it the four conversations. So the idea is you view the sale as a series of four linear discrete conversations. And at any point in the sale, you simply ask yourself, what conversation is this? Number one, what conversation is this? Number two, what's the objective of this conversation? And number three, what framework do I use to navigate to this objective? So this would be an incoming inquiry. This is the second conversation, which we call the qualifying conversation. It's a standard sale conversation where you're vetting the lead to see if an opportunity exists. So you should be applying some vetting criteria like what is the job or the objective? Who are the decision makers, the decision-making process? What's the time frame? <clears throat> What's the budget? That's standard. It often goes by the acronym MANT for budget, authority, need, time frame. So if I'm working at your firm and I'm in charge of response of responding to these incoming inquiries, I will, if somebody looks superficially small on the surface, I might send them some sort of hurdle to jump over via email first and it might be a pricing minimum i'll come back to that but if i get on the phone with somebody and i'm really suspicious about their ability to afford us i could just jump right to budget and say hey you know before we go too far we have a minimum level of engagement of a hundred thousand dollars a year in fees just to pick a hypothetical number where we're um it doesn't make sense for us to do business with a with a client below that level. Before we get too far to talk about your project here, um, would you be in that threshold, either at this project or other work beyond this, would you be at that threshold of spending $100,000 in fees over the course of the year with us? And so having this very direct, and you can hear the way I'm delivering it, it's polite, but direct and to the point conversation with the client about, you know, let's... Let's just talk about whether or not it makes sense for us to do business together. If we go back to this idea of you grow your firm not by increasing the number of clients that you have, but, in, but by increasing that average spend, if you're a million-dollar firm and you have 10 clients, and this is proper math to use, then your minimum level of engagement in a sales conversation would be $100,000. If you're trying to grow to $2 million, the number that I would drop in that conversation is 200000 Hey, before we go too far, I just want to ask, you know, we have this minimum level of engagement. We're looking for our clients to spend a minimum of $200,000 EBs with us over the course of the year. Does that, would you be in that ballpark? And the client might say, well, I'm not, I don't have that kind of budget for this project. And you can say, yeah, okay, but we're not in the one-off project business. It makes sense for us to be in longer-term relationships. Would it, you know, after this, you know, when you think of this project and other work that you might give to a firm like ours, would that... Are we in the ballpark? And if the client says no, then the conversation's over. Now, you from time to time, it might make sense to take a project when you have excess capacity, when you know it's a one-off project, but only after you've had this very direct qualifying conversation with the client. And I think sometimes in our role as salespeople for our firms, we have these just um, – outdated, not even outdated, somewhat ridiculous notions of what it's okay to say and not say. It's perfectly okay to say. In fact, it's irresponsible not to say to the client, we're looking to enter into engagements with clients like this who have this criteria. And part of that criteria is they're going to spend so much money with us. So in your situation, Chris, at your firm, if you're overwhelmed with 
these number of inquiries, get right to that money conversation as soon as possible. Figure out what your minimum level of engagement is mm-hmm. um, and use it in a sales conversation and see how the client responds. And you'll know it's not black or white. It's not cut or dry. You use that number as a litmus test and you see how people respond to it. And you will know based on how they respond to it, if it makes sense for you to continue to have a conversation with them. And if it doesn't, refer them to somebody else. Right. Right. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. I think that we, and I've sort of been rethinking rethinking this since I read your book, what we typically, we have some fixed pricing and on, on certain services. And a lot of times we use that sort of as a measure, but I think it makes a lot more sense to use the minimum level of engagement, um, especially because if we want to use value-based pricing, throwing out fixed pricing um, at the beginning sort of <laughs> undermines that whole idea. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Well, it's been totally awesome um, talking to you. And one of the things that I always like to ask my guests um, before they leave is sort of three three takeaways. You know, agencies are listening to this podcast for the first time and getting interested in value-based pricing. What, what three pieces of advice would you give um, an agency who's looking to sort of take the first step? Um, I would, the first three pieces of advice I would give them would be my first three rules of pricing creativity. Number one, price the client, not the service, not the job. So the principle is called price discrimination. Sounds like a bad thing. It's actually a good thing. Um, also known as willingness to pay. Different clients pay different amounts based on the value that you create them. Number two, Rule number two is always offer options. Three options is best, four is okay, five can sometimes make sense. You start to introduce the paradox of choice. Just think of three options. Um, Rule number three is to anchor high. When you deliver your three option proposal, start with a high price and the high priced option. And don't worry, it's okay to be nervous. It's It's okay for the client to react. Don't worry about it. The job of that anchor price is to make the other prices look more affordable. And there's all kinds of science behind that as well. So those would be my three pieces of advice. Price the client, offer options, anchor high. Awesome. Well, that's great advice. And I recommend everyone go out and buy both of your books because I think they're both awesome. Um, Where's uh, the best place for people to get them? Um, The Win Without Pitching Manifesto you can find on Amazon. We've just released the Audible edition uh, a couple of months ago. It's av- available in Kindle and hardcover. Pricing Creativity is available only at pricingcreativity.com. Embrace yourself. It is the only book on pricing that is priced based on the principles in the book. So there are three options, three different ways you can, three different formats, ways you can, and three different prices relative to what you would pay for a book, but all of them are fully guaranteed. So if you buy the book and aren't satisfied with how much you're making or anything else about it, send it back for a free fund. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, well, thanks again so much. This has been a great conversation. And, um, you know, if I haven't gushed enough about your books, I will just say that they're really excellent and inspiring. And we're looking to, you know, implement what we can um, at our agency. Thanks for coming on the show. Uh, thanks, Chris. The pleasure is all mine. I appreciate you having me on. 